Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the history and evolution of esports. Beginning with the discussion of where video games came from and how they progressed over time, we will then move to dissect the world of esports and explain how they grew from a small competition at a college to a worldwide sport generating billions of dollars. So if you ever wondered how a playing card company founded in 1889 grew into one of the biggest video game companies in the world today, or how esports athletes are able to make millions of dollars a year just playing video games, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Esports has exploded onto the scene in recent years, generating billions of dollars, filling stadiums and arenas around the world, and being on the verge of becoming an Olympic sport. Colleges and universities have created esport teams and now give scholarship money to the top players. Streaming services like Twitch and YouTube capture millions of viewers, subscribers, and dollars for the platform and the gamer. But why is all this happening? Why have esports exploded in the last 5 to 10 years? And where are they going in the future? Well, today, I want to tackle all these questions and others as we deep dive into the world of esports. So let's begin with the basics. What is esports? Well, Hemery and Soblum define esports as, quote, a form of sport where the primary aspect of the sport are facilitated by electronic systems. The input of players and teams as well as the output of the eSports systems are mediated by human-computer interfaces. In a more practical term, eSports commonly refers to competitive pro and amateur video gaming that is often conducted or coordinated by different leagues, ladders, and tournaments, and where players customarily belong to teams or other quote-unquote sporting organizations who are sponsored by various business organizations, end quote. But when did these types of competitions begin, and how did they grow to the size they are today? Well, before we dive into that, I think it's important we set the stage and first talk about the history and evolution of video games so that we can have some context for where electronic games actually come from and how they evolved over time. Interestingly, the concept of games defined in the dictionary as a form of play or sport, especially a competitive one played according to rules and decided by skill, strength, or luck, but more aptly defined by sports scholars as a structured activity in which individuals compete with physical or mental skills for an outcome that brings prestige or status. But this idea of games dates back thousands of years to the earliest societies we know of. Archaeologists have found records of ancient societies like the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Romans, and Chinese all involved in these types of activities in their leisure time. And we have a whole series of podcasts where we talk about sport and recreation ancient societies that I would encourage you to go listen to where we talk more about those early types of games. 
But to get back to video games, the history of video games is far shorter and more recent. According to the History Channel, video games actually got their start not in homes or arcades, but rather in the research labs of scientists. More precisely, in 1952, a British professor named A.S. Douglas created a computer game called XOX, or Knots and Crosses, or what we might think of as a more modern-day form of tic-tac-toe. And he created this as part of his dissertation on human-computer interactions while at the University of Cambridge. It was a very basic game of 35 by 16 pixels on a computer screen that involved players playing a game against the computer. The game, however, relied on a very special computer to operate called the EDSAX, or the EDSAC which was so large and unique that people couldn't find them outside of the university setting. So this early game that was created by Douglas was done just to show how humans and computers might be able to interact and to forecast where things might go in the future. If you fast forward six years later, an individual named William Higginbotham who was the head of the Brookhaven's Labs Instrumentation Division, decided to create a new type of scientific exhibit for that year's annual Visitor's Day. See, he wanted to create an exhibit that was not like the boring, non-interactive displays that were so prevalent in the day. Rather, he wanted to create something that was interactive, that visitors could partake in. And Higginbotham said at the time, quote, it might liven up the place to have a game that people could play and which would convey the message that our scientific endeavors have relevance for society, end quote. His creation, which was a game called Tennis for Two, was the first video game that the general public could play. And according to the Brookhaven National Laboratory, the game was, quote, a side view of a tennis court on an oscilloscope screen, which used a cathode ray tube similar to the black and white television tube. The ball, a brightly lit moving dot, left trails as it bounced to alternate sides of the court. Players served and volleyed using controllers with buttons and rotating dials to control the angle of an invisible tennis racket swing, end quote. Four years later, in 1962, Steve Russell, a computer programmer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, created, along with his group, a game called Space Wars. This was the first video game that could be played on multiple computers, the Program Data Processor 1, and it marked a major advancement in video games because, as the Computer History Museum noted, quote, Steve Russell's Space War showed that fun could be a driving force in the advancement of computer technology. It influenced companies like Atari and others in creating a powerful new entertainment medium that would become a multi-billion dollar industry, end quote. Following Russell's creation of Space Wars, a group of developers at Sanders Association, Inc., led by Ralph Baer in 1967, created the first prototype for a multiplayer, multi-program video system that could be played on someone's home television. This marked, as we know it, the birth of the home gaming system. Originally, the unit was called TV Game Unit 7. The console soon would get the nickname the Brown Box because it looked like a giant brown box. But it could be programmed, most importantly, to play games such as ping pong and checkers, as well as target shooting games and golf, 
which both required special attachments but allowed individuals to play at home against each other. When Bear was asked about this and years later and reflecting back upon his invention, he said, quote, the minute we played ping pong, we knew we had a product, end quote. Though this was invented, as I said, in 1967, the brown box wasn't available for purchase by the general public until 1972, which is when Bear licensed the brown box to a company named Magadvax, which went on to sell the game console under the name The Odyssey. Though it wasn't a commercial success, in part because people didn't know what it was or didn't see the full potential of it, The Odyssey did begin the journey of video games becoming a desired form of home entertainment. And we can see this if we look just three years ahead in 1975, when Atari followed the brown box and released their own video unit, Pong, which was a home video game console that was mirrored after the arcade game Pong that was created in 1972. Pong was the first home video game console that could be seen as a commercial success as, according to Mary Bellis, Atari sold 150,000 units of Pong. Two years later, Atari released the Atari 2600, which had interchangeable game cartridges that played multicolored games. Bellis noted that, quote, by 1980, sales of Atari home video systems had reached $415 million. And thus, we have the start of the commercial home gaming unit. And the success of Atari, not surprisingly, sparked other companies to get involved in home video games as well. And in 1977, Nintendo, which began as a playing card company in 1889, they hired an individual named Shigeru Maimoto to help them get into the home video game market. And the hire was a successful one as, in 1985, Nintendo released, in America, their first home console called the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, which went on to sell over 60 million units. In 1986, Sega Enterprises Inc., which at the time was one of the largest manufacturers of arcade games, they launched their own version of the home video game console to rival the NES called the Sega Master System. Three years later, 1989, Nintendo progressed the home video game market even more when they released the first handheld gaming console labeled the Game Boy. And the video gaming unit went on to be bundled with the popular game Tetris and sold over 150 million units worldwide. The back and forth between Nintendo and Sega continued over the years as the two companies really battled to get the bigger share of the market. In 1989, Sega released the first 16-bit console known as Sega Genesis, which played the popular 1991 game Sonic the Hedgehog. In response, in 1991, Nintendo released their own 16-bit Super NES. Four years later, Sega came out with a 32-bit console that played games on a CD rather than a cartridge and featured images that appeared on the screen in three dimensions. That same year, Sony who had been working to create a multimedia, multi-purpose entertainment unit since 1991, released the PlayStation in America to rave reviews and sales. They ended up selling over 2 million units in the first year, and by 2003 had sold over 100 million units. 
The great sales were due in large part to Sony having the PSX joystick, which allowed for greater control of game action. And also, the sales were due in large part to the price point, which was $100 less than the Sega system that was out. Nintendo kept up with the new trends, and they launched the Nintendo 64 in 1996, which featured the first 64-bit images. The battle between these three companies continued to escalate, but Sony, who developed strong support from third parties like Electronic Arts or Nakamo, they locked in exclusive rights to games, and they slowly started to crush the competition. Not wanting to go down quietly, though, Sega released the Sega Dreamcast in 1999, which was the first major console to include online gaming. Now, this was a major innovation at the time that would have some profound implications for the gaming community in esports moving forward. But at the time, people didn't know how to capitalize on this online gaming. They didn't know how to take advantage of it and what it really meant. And as a result, the sales of the Dreamcast in 99 were very poor and actually forced Sega to pull the product off the market in 2001 and exit the console market altogether. And though Sega had exited the market in 2001, Sony and Nintendo didn't slow down. And in 2000, Sony released the PlayStation 2, which is the top-selling game console of all time, followed in 2001 by Nintendo releasing the GameCube. Microsoft, which began as a software company in 1975, entered the home console market in the same year, and they released the Xbox, which was the first console to have a built-in hard drive. Throughout the aughts, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo continued to compete for market shares. And in 2005, Microsoft released the Xbox 360, which featured an accessory known as Microsoft Connect, which used motion sensor technology to allow for hands-free play. In 2006, Sony released the PlayStation 3, which was the first gaming console to use Blu-ray Disc, and the first Sony product that allowed for online gaming through the PlayStation Network. The same year, Nintendo released the Nintendo Wii, which sought to target a broader market by using a handheld motion capture device, which allowed for more interactive gameplay. Fast forward to the modern day, and we currently have each of the big three gaming consoles having released new products in the last five years. In 2013, Sony and Microsoft released the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One respectfully, and then updated their units. We now have the PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X in 2016 and 2017 to stay up to date with the newest TVs by giving them 4K capabilities. In 2017, Nintendo, trying to unite the success of the handheld Game Boy and past at-home units, came out with the Nintendo Switch, which was the first system that could be used both on a television and as a handheld device. Now, I've provided a very quick overview of the history and timelines of home video games, but all the advances in technology and gameplay over this time and across the four major players in the home console video gaming market can be boiled down into two basic things. The first is that the evolution of the home video game has been marked by the continual change to improve 
game play, meaning increasing the control the players have of the action that's occurring on the screen. This has been done by increasing the graphic components of the games, improving and changing the design of the controllers, and through innovations like motion capture technology that I previously mentioned. The second and just as important thing that we can talk about when we look at the history and evolution is that home video game consoles have always been designed as a means to solicit interaction between players and the continual changes that have been made to the systems have time after time looked to improve this interaction between players and create a social environment. Think about it. Back to the initial 1952 computer game, the Knots and Crosses, aka the Tic-Tac-Toe game. After that, which the player just played against the computer, seemingly every home console involved players having the options to play against one another. As time passed, devices started to allow more and more players to be involved in a game, culminating in that 1999 Sega Dreamcast that we talked about, which allowed players to play not only in the same room against each other, but against each other from across the world through an online platform. Today, all home consoles allow for this online gaming regardless of the type of game that's being played. This has created online environments and social interactions for gamers all over the world. And speaking of those interactions, let's now move in to talk about esports. Because the growth in home video game consoles brought about not only a sense of community amongst gamers, but also a series of competitions between players to try to determine who the best player in the community was. More specifically, according to the history of esports, the first documented video game contest was held in 1972 at Stanford University, where contestants played the video game Space Wars against one another on the newly released Odyssey gaming system that we previously talked about. The advertisement for the tournament at the university read, quote, The first intergalactic space war Olympics will be held Wednesday, October 19th. First prize will be a one-year subscription to Rolling Stone, end quote. However, it wasn't until eight years later in 1980 that many recognized the first true video gaming competition. Marked by the growth in the popularity of the home game consoles, and more particularly by the growth in Atari, a tournament was organized to crown the best player of the Atari game Space Invaders and to capitalize on and further monetize the growing gaming industry. Now, they labeled this the Atari Invaders Championship, and the event drew, by multiple accounts, roughly 10,000 gamers who played in regional qualifiers all over the country before meeting in New York for the finals. The event was so big that multiple reporters and news outlets covered it, including the New York Times. Atari tried to follow up the success of this tournament in 1981 by hosting the Atari World Championships in Chicago, where the winner would receive $50,000. And Atari was so excited about this tournament that they actually hired a third party called Tournament Games Inc., or TGI, to help them put on the event. Now, TGI was well known at the time for organizing foosball tournaments, and so Atari thought that if they paired up with them, they'd be able to generate enough interest and excitement to attract ten to 15,000 players to the tournament. However, 
things didn't go as planned, participants were forced to pay their own way, which served as a major deterrent to them traveling. And as a result, only 138 players showed up and no prize money was even awarded. Though smaller competitions were held throughout the 1980s, none had the same initial success as the Space Invaders Championship. None until the 1990s, that is. And remember, the 90s were marked by two things. First, a growth in the number of companies getting into the home video game console market. And second, and maybe just as important, is the rise of the internet and online gaming culture that we talked about began with the Sega Dreamcast. The internet also gave rise to PC games, as well as those interconnected video game consoles. But both of those allowed gamers to play against each other from across the world. And as a result of this, large-scale video gaming tournaments started popping up everywhere. In 1990, Nintendo put on the Nintendo World Championship, which was an event that traveled around the United States and Canada 30 different cities, hosting competitions in each city before finally getting to Universal Studios in California, where they hosted the championship event. The World Championships were set up so that at each stop across the country, a city champion would be crowned, and as a prize, that individual would be given a trip to those Universal Studios to play in the final championship event. There were three different age groups for the event. You had 18 and over, 11 and under, and 12 to 17. Each participant played a series of three Nintendo games, Super Mario, Red Racer, and Tetris, and through a formula, had their scores added together, and the highest score was the winner. Overall, the event was deemed a major success, as it accomplished its goal, which was not necessarily to crown the best Nintendo player, but rather to raise awareness and sales of the NES system. Not surprisingly then, in 1994, Nintendo put on another world championship. This time, they called it the Nintendo Power Fest. And they did that in 94 to promote the release of the Super NES. Following this event in 1997 was an event called the Red Annihilation, which was a competition featuring the computer game Quake. Now, this competition is often called the first esports tournament, as it was the first to truly use the internet to bring players together from all over the world to compete. The tournament featured 2,000 online players who faced off one-on-one against each other until only 16 remained. The final 16 were then flown to Atlanta, Georgia to compete head-to-head with one another to crown a champion. The growth of these competitions sparked not only tournaments, but also leagues to form to help put on and run the events year after year. The first such league was formed in 1997 and was called the Cyber Athlete Professional League, or CPL, which was then soon followed by the Professional Gamers League, or PGL, in the same year. This was seemingly the beginning of the explosions of esports across the world as improvements in organization and technology resulted in rapid growth. In South Korea, for example, the government formed the Korean Esports Association in 2000. 
According to the organization, their, quote, official goal is to make esports an official sporting event and to solidify the commercial position of esports in all sectors. The organization manages the broadcasting of esports, the formulation of new events, and the conditions in which pro gamers work, as well as encourages the playing of video games by the general population. Other leagues formed around the world as well. In the U.S., you had the eSports League, or the ESL, which began in 2000. In France, you had the Electronic Sports World Cup, which began in 2003. While China held the World eSport Games from 2004 to 2010. The growth of the number of leagues and the scale of competitions brought with it interest from television networks, and so across the world, major TV networks looking for programming started to take note of the growth of popularity in video game competitions and started broadcasting them during the 2000s. In 2007, for example, CBS aired pre-recorded footage of the World Series of Video Games. In the UK, the channel xleague.tv broadcasts esports from 2007 to 2009. In France, Game 1 broadcasts esports regularly. The combination of all these factors, that is, the continual professionalization, commercialization, and commodification of video gaming competitors, brought about increased paydays for those who are good enough to compete at the highest levels. For example, in 2006, the World Wide Web Game Championships was held by Fun Technologies and featured a $1 million grand prize. But this was not the only tournament giving out massive grand prizes in the 2000s. According to the research, there were a dozen similar large-scale esport competitions around the world. That number was about to explode in the 2010s, though, in large part due to one new video gaming streaming platform known as Twitch.tv. Diving in to this platform a little bit more, Twitch actually began in full earnestness in 2011 when it allowed video gamers a place to stream their games on the internet. Now, according to Darren Getter of MSNBC, quote, when Twitch launched back in 2011, the company focused on esports and gaming. During the site's launch, Twitch had close to 3.2 million unique visitors per month. In 2012, the site grew to 20 million visitors per month. And by 2014, tech giants Amazon and Google both tried to acquire the site, end quote. And in fact, Amazon ended up acquiring the site later for almost $1 billion. But anyways, the unique platform, unlike broadcast TV, gave the gamer complete control over their content, and with the rise of similar sites like YouTube having massive streaming services for video gamers, they turned the idea of watching someone else play games into an exciting pastime. According to Dave Consolazzo, while competitive gaming was previously mostly just enjoyed by gamers and casual fans, Twitch's online broadcasting of tournaments and events around the world gave anyone with an interest in the sport a chance to dive in. Games like League of Legends and Defense of the Ancients 2 became immensely popular as spectator sports, bringing in billions of unique viewers on Twitch, end quote. So Twitch not only allowed people to watch 
games online, but they also began to expose the idea of competitive gaming or watching other people play against each other into a marketable business. So that brings us to the modern day in the current world of esports and competitive video gaming. Esports leagues have become commonplace. Prize money for champion video gamers is massive. Players are generating millions of dollars a year for streaming on sites like YouTube and Twitch. Colleges are even fielding esports teams, promoting video games, and offering scholarships to their top players. And to top it all off, major television networks are broadcasting events in prime time and drawing tens of thousands of fans for the live event. That is all a lot to take in. So let's try to break this down a little bit to talk about the current status of eSports. And let's begin with just looking at eSports leagues. After an exhaustive search, I found that there are at least 462 different professional eSports leagues around the world. These leagues vary drastically in size, the games that are offered, and the locations in which they are based. But, the one thing that is true, that regardless of where you live, the type of games you like to play, and what type of system you like to play those games on, is that you can probably find a tournament or a league around you. Now, the top 10 leagues for 2018, as measured by the size of their prize pool, are all awarding more than $4 million a year. Leading the way last year was the Dada Tournament, which is also known as the Defense of the Ancients 2. And the main tournament for them is called the International, which awarded $25.5 million in prize money in 2018. Dota 2 had nine other smaller tournaments around the world in addition to the international, resulting in a total prize pool for Dota 2 of $41.26 million, which is the largest pool of money ever awarded for video game competitions. This almost doubled, in fact, the second biggest prize pool, totaling $22.47 million for tournaments for the game Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is followed closely last year by Fortnite tournaments, which awarded $19.96 million in prize money. Now, an important note is that in 2019, Fortnite creators Epic they have pledged $100 million in prize money to be awarded throughout the year. So with that, Fortnite will almost double what the Defense of the Ancients 2 tournaments did in 2018. While most of the top leagues in prize money are in first or third person shooter games, sport game manufacturers and professional sport leagues are catching on to the esports craze and beginning their own leagues now as well. In 2018, the NBA joined with Take-Two Interactive and formed NBA 2K League, which is, quote, a professional esports league featuring the best NBA 2K players in the world. In fact, it is the first official esports league operated by a U.S. professional sports league. Other professional sport leagues are following suit as well in helping to grow this eSport craze even more. For example, this year, the English Premier League and the MLS joined with EA Sports and launched the EPL and the EMLS, two games that capitalize on EA Sports' 
FIFA video game and allow individuals to play against each other in competitions while being teams in the individual leagues. The NFL sponsored the Madden Cup Championship, while the NHL joined with esports platform Face It to help put on the 2018 NHL Gaming World Championships in Vegas. Even Major League Baseball, the only major professional sports league in the United States that doesn't have an eSports counterpart, they are talking about getting involved in starting their own league very similar to what the NBA has done with the NBA 2K League. Now that we understand what these leagues are, let's go back and talk about the prize money. Because the money that's generated for these tournaments come from multiple sources and it's important to understand as individuals who either are involved or might want to get involved in the sport management field what those sources of money are. So the primary source of money oftentimes comes from the game developers, the people who create the game, who will put money into a prize pool in hopes of generating interest for individuals to want to play the game. The idea is, if I can get more people interested in competing in these tournaments or potentially winning this money, I can actually increase the number of sales I have of that video game and hopefully make money through those increased sales. Various companies will also sign on with these leagues or tournaments and they'll have sponsorship deals which are very similar to what companies are doing with sponsorships with professional sports teams or professional sports leagues or even professional sport athletes. Some of the more well-known sponsors of esports this year have been Monster Energy Drink, Geico Insurance, Gillette, Intel, 5-Hour Energy, and Twitch, that streaming platform that we previously talked about. Even Nike has gotten involved in the sponsorship game, signing a four-year deal with the League of Legends Pro League, or the LPL. As Nick Summer noted from Engadget, quote, The deal isn't surprising. Esports is a fast-growing industry, and League of Legends has a huge global-spanning audience. Nike-sponsored jerseys will improve the LPL's image and, provided the garments are high-quality, boost merchandising revenue for the teams in Riot Games, the developer of League of Legends. End quote. Money for the professional leagues and teams also come from the television deals that eSport leagues have across the world. For example, ESPN signed on in 2018 to broadcast the Overwatch League and the League of Legends, and Turner has bought the rights to broadcast FIFA 19 events on both Twitch and Bleacher Report Live. Participating in eSports events isn't the only way to get some of the money generated from these revenue sources, though, as many eSports athletes generate good revenue through streaming and posting videos on sites like Twitch and YouTube. Money is made through these sites primarily through receiving a portion of the advertisement money from ads that run during the video. Generally speaking, a YouTuber will receive a dollar to $2 for every 1,000 viewers they have. You also will get money from having prime subscribers to your channel and having sponsorship deals with companies that might want to pay you to wear their product or have their product placed in your video streams. These revenue sources can really add up, especially for the top gamers who have millions of followers on both YouTube and Twitch, leading the top pros to make between half a million and a million dollars a month from streaming. 
It's important to note that the growth of esports in the video gaming industry is not just causing businesses to take notice, it's also causing colleges and universities to perk up and try to capitalize on the growing industry. They have done this really in two ways. First, colleges have started forming varsity esport teams. In fact, over 130 schools have formed esport teams with the vast majority playing competitions in the National Association of Collegiate Esports. Now, the association reports, quote, we are a nonprofit membership association organized by and on behalf of our member institutions. Together, our members are developing the structure and tools needed to advance collegiate esports in the varsity space. We are collaborating to lay the groundwork in areas such as eligibility, path to graduation, and competition and scholarships. NACE is the only association of varsity esports programs at colleges and universities across the U.S. They have reported that over 3,000 individuals are participating in collegiate esports and should be considered student-athletes. And they note that colleges have granted over $15 million in esports scholarship and aid. In addition to sponsoring varsity team, colleges have also started to add esport majors for those students who are interested in pursuing careers in the esport industry. And this isn't only happening in the United States. Countries like the United Kingdom, Singapore, and China are all promoting esports in their universities and offering programs to help develop gaming skills of players. They're teaching students how to design games. They're teaching students about hosting tournaments and events. They're teaching them about marketing within esports. And in the end, they're trying to set their students up with jobs for companies that work in the esport industry. Which leads me into the final topic I want to hit today, and that is the overall size of the esport industry. It's important to point out when I'm talking about esports that we're talking about a global sport and not something that's just specific to America. In fact, Limelight Network's report on the state of online gambling found that gamers in the UK spent the most hours a week playing games, while the US coming in second, followed closely by France, Germany, and Japan. On average, they found that people who play video games play for 5.96 hours a week. And when they sit down to play a video game, they're playing on average for an hour and 20 minutes. But maybe even more important for our conversation of esports is that they spent an average of one hour and 48 minutes watching esports a week on sites like Twitch and YouTube. For comparison purposes, these people spend 2 hours and 27 minutes watching traditional sports. But, when you look at millennial gamers, those individuals who are 18 to 35, which is a prime target market for companies, they are spending more time now watching people play video games than they are spending time watching traditional sports. And if we subdivide that group even more to 18 to 25 year olds, they are spending double the time watching esports over traditional sports. To provide even more context to this, according to Goldman Sachs, in 2018, 176 million people watch esports a month. And Goldman Sachs projects that that will grow to 276 million people a month by the year 2022. 
The largest portion of these people they found live in Asia, with 79% of the people that watch esports being under the age of 35. To put some perspective on just how big the number of viewers is, if you add up the entire audience for esports viewership on YouTube and Twitch, it is larger than the audience of HBO, Netflix, and ESPN combined. All of this has led Goldman Sachs to project a massive increase in meteorite deals in the future and even more growth in the finances that make up esports. And speaking of finances, According to the Super Data Research, in 2018, esports generated $1.6 billion in revenue and is projected to hit $1.8 billion in the year 2019. By 2022, they project esports revenue to exceed $2.3 billion, and Goldman Sachs goes as high to project that esports will hit $3 billion in revenue in that year. Where does all this money come from? Well, the Super Data Research reported that 35% of that money comes from revenue from ads and sponsorships. 50% of that revenue comes from investments, things like those video game developers who are putting money into the industry. 5% of it comes from betting on these tournaments in, the, in amateur tournaments. 5% of it comes from merchandise sales and ticket sales at these massive events. And 6% come from the prize pool paid out by the tournaments. In the end, there's no sign that this growth that we've talked about is going to slow anytime soon. We're going to continue to have new gaming consoles that improve gameplay, that allow for more social interaction, be made informed. And on the other side, we're going to continue to have competitions because there's so much money now involved in that industry. And as we see both of those grow, we're going to continue to see more programs at schools focusing on developing skill sets of students so that they can enter into this esports world and help put on tournaments, sell tickets, sell merchandise, sell sponsorships, do the marketing. The most interesting thing to do then is to embrace this esport world and see just how far it can go. And hopefully, today, our brief deep dive into the esports world has done that for you. Hopefully, throughout the last hour or so, you've not only been introduced into this interesting new sport and learned a little bit about the history of video games and the growth of competitive gaming and esports, but you've also learned a little bit about the industry and where it's going. And you can see a little about how sport management might tie into this and how the things that we are training students to do in school can be beneficial for them in the long term. If you have any questions about esports or would like to hear more podcasts on the topic, please feel free to reach out to us and follow us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Until next week, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. <laughs>